Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now that the word has been read, we seek your Spirit's help to bring to life your truth. May it bear upon us with gravity. May your Spirit move our hearts, soften our hearts, that we may receive what you have to say to us with a heart of faith and obedience. We pray that you be glorified in this moment and that your church be built up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are bringing to a conclusion the series that we've been going through in the book of Proverbs. We've been studying this book of wisdom, seeking within it practical wisdom, what we call wisdom for life. That's basically what we've been talking about in the past few months, how to grow biblically wise and not just to be biblically smart. You see, biblically smart individuals know a whole lot about the Bible. They can quote you large chunks of it. They could explain it to you and even teach the Bible to you. And if you're faced with a clear-cut decision between right and wrong, between what the Bible describes as obedience versus disobedience, then biblical smarts is enough. It's sufficient to point you in the obvious direction. But the reality is, most of the decisions that you're going to face in life, especially the hard ones, are not going to be clear-cut. They're not going to be easily spelled out for you in the scriptures. They're usually not decisions between right or wrong, good or bad. They're typically decisions between good, better, and best. And in those situations, biblical smarts is not going to help you. It's not enough. What you need in those situations is biblical wisdom. Wisdom helps you to be able to take the teachings of Scripture and to apply it to everyday experiences of life, experiences which are typically confusing and, and morally fuzzy or maybe even morally neutral. How do you handle those kinds of situations? That's the kind of wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs. It's wisdom for life. Now, back when we looked at Proverbs chapter 1, we saw there that it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, the truly wise are those who have a, a baseline respect for God and for his sovereign wisdom. The wise are the ones who humble themselves, who, who don't stand in judgment over God uh, or over God's uh, word or God's will. They are the ones who submit to his word and they trust in his will. Well, just as the book of Proverbs began with an emphasis on the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, it fittingly concludes with a re-emphasis on the same thing. Listen with me to Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This emphasis on having a proper fear, a reverent respect of the Lord, it serves as a beautiful set of bookends for Proverbs. And now this concluding bookend is presented to us as a portrait of a beautiful, praiseworthy woman. She's often known as the Proverbs 31 woman. Verses 10 to 31 is essentially a poem dedicated to her. 
this, I realize, is one of the best-known passages here in the book of Proverbs. It's often read in churches on Mother's Day, or it's, it's quoted and framed in craft rooms, found in, in, in our homes. But, you know, in all honesty, this may be one of the passages most dreaded by Christian women. They look at the Proverbs 31 woman, and they see an impossible standard. Look at this woman. She excels at being this dutiful housewife who keeps her, her home running like a tight ship. And uh, she's this awesome homeschooling mom whose teaching is described as kindness. Her, her instruction to her kids is, is loving. And at the same time, she's this amazing businesswoman who's so good with money and she makes great investments. I mean, she can just basically do it all. She does it all well. How can I ever live up to this Proverbs 31 woman? I think that's what many Christian women are thinking. If this is the ideal biblical wife, then it just feels like an impossible standard. And if men are measuring their wives against this Proverbs 31 woman, it just feels unfair. And if young men are using it as a measuring stick in order to find an excellent wife, then it feels like an exercise in futility. They're never going to find someone so good. Well, friends, I, I think all of these frustrations, I think they all stem from a basic misreading of this text. So you can't see it very well in the English translation, but it's crucial to understand that this passage is an acrostic poem that follows the Hebrew alphabet. Every verse begins with a successive letter. And so there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and that's why there are 22 verses. So what this means for us is that this passage was not meant to be read as a checklist for you to achieve. But as one commentator puts it, think of it more as a string of pearls for you to admire. It's like the author, and we're told that the author here is King Lemuel, not Solomon. Uh, he's the one, uh, King Lemuel is the one who wrote chapter 31. It's like he was using poetic license to come up with various attributes that characterize a godly, wise woman, and he's just stringing them together like a string of pearls. And so it was never meant to be read as this exhaustive checklist for the ideal wife. I mean, just notice how there are certain attributes missing here. Uh, there's no mention of her relationship between her and her husband. And there's no reference to her devotional life between her and God. And so, again, this passage is clearly not this checklist for us to achieve, but a string of pearls for us to admire. And it's not just a passage for, for you wives or just for you women. This is a passage, really, for all of us. It doesn't just tell us what an excellent wife looks like. No, it tells us what a wise life looks like. If we consider the larger context of this book, um, we start to realize that this Proverbs 31 woman is yet another personification of wisdom. Just like how we saw back in chapters 8 and 9, how wisdom is personified as a woman. And recall how folly, on the other hand, the contrast to wisdom, was also personified as a woman. Specifically as an adulteress in chapter 7 and also at the end of chapter 9. So friends, that means whether you are a man or a woman, whether you're married or single, 
This Proverbs 31 woman is completely relevant to you. She's meant to inspire you. She's not meant to crush your spirits with some kind of unattainable standard. No, rather, she is to lift your spirit. She is to inspire you, all of you, to live more wisely. So, friends, as we cover this text this morning, as we admire this inspiring woman, let's consider three aspirations. First, Aspire to the heroic faithfulness of this Proverbs 31 woman. Second, aspire to her diligent fruitfulness. And third, aspire to her proper fearfulness. That's where we're going with our text. Well, the first aspiration is to aspire to the heroic faithfulness of this Proverbs 31 woman. That's the characteristic being praised in verses 10 to 12. Listen to to it again. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Now this poem begins with this rhetorical question. Who can find an excellent wife? The point is that she's a rare find. She's priceless. She's far more precious, it says, than jewels. Now, what I find interesting is that commentators, when they describe uh, the, the form of this passage, the genre of this passage, they would describe this as a heroic poem. It's not a love song. And that surprised me because I always thought this was a love ballad. But it's more like an ode to a champion. I don't think that the way the ESV translates that phrase, an excellent wife, really helps us here. I think a better phrase would be a noble wife or a worthy wife or a valiant wife who can find. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in the book of Judges to describe Gideon as a mighty man of valor. And so there are definitely military overtones in that word. It's meant to convey in its basic meaning strength and power. And so this is a heroic poem praising a woman engaged in the battlefield of life. All the heroism typically found in battle that inspires us and and moves us to action, all of that can also be found in the home. Just as Israel's judges, like, like Gideon, were a blessing to God's people through their military exploits, This Proverbs 31 woman is an equally heroic figure who blesses others through her exploits in her home life, in the care and the protection of her family. So, again, the point is that we shouldn't read this passage as some kind of soul-crushing, guilt-inducing, impossible standard that we're never going to live up to. No, that's, that's not how you would, you would read a, a, a Medal of Honor citation, would you? Is that how you would respond to a movie uh, about the heroic acts of, of common citizens? You know, the other day I was, I was watching a documentary that touched on the events of 9-11. And so just think, for example, when you, when you think about those heroic passengers on United 93, you know, the, the, the ones who brought down the fourth plane before it could be used to kill thousands more, 
Do you think to yourself when you, when you read or watch their ho- heroic acts, do you think, oh man, I, I feel so guilty that I can't live up to that. I, I'm, I'm so ashamed that I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do that. That's not how you should respond. That would, that would be an unhealthy, inappropriate response to heroism. You should instead look at heroes like that and be inspired to aspire to even to a fraction of their heroism, to exhibit a, a similar valor and, and a similar nobility in the smaller battlefields of life that you face. So, friends, in the same way, that's how we should respond to this heroic poem about the Proverbs 31 woman. This, again, is why I think the word excellent can be problematic. Because when we read about an excellent wife, it's really hard for us not to think about excellence in terms of performance. Because when we think about an excellent musician or an excellent athlete or excellent student, it really speaks to your performance. So it's natural to interpret an excellent wife here in verse 10 in the same way. But just look. Look again at what's being praised about this woman. I mean, sure, we're going to see in the subsequent verses that she is very productive and she bears a lot of good fruit. But notice how she's being praised here in verses 10 to 12, not for her performance and achievements, but for her faithfulness. It's for her trustworthiness. It says that her husband's heart trusts in her. He has complete confidence to put his welfare and the welfare of his household in her hands as he goes off to the city gates, which in ancient days was kind of like like a city hall where where, um, leaders would deal with civil matters. So as, as he goes to the gates to conduct business on behalf of the city, he trusts that she's taking care of business on behalf of their family. And that's what makes her so priceless to her husband. She is more precious than jewels. She herself is her husband's treasure. And that's why he can trust her with their family's treasures. Under her watch, he knows that he lacks nothing. She's faithful. She's trusted. That's the attribute being highlighted. And that's really the attribute for us to emulate, to aspire to. It's about being faithful with whatever responsibility that we've been given to be a man, a woman, a child who is worthy of trust. So, friends, don't be don't be crushed by this Proverbs 31 woman. Don't fret over trying to be like this Renaissance woman who seems super capable and seems like she's able to perfectly balance her work life and her home life without a hitch. Look, the truth is, the truth is that you may never achieve the same accomplishments as this woman, and you may never even have the same opportunities to to be a wife or a mother or a businesswoman or professional. But all of that is really besides the point. The point is, take a good look at her. Look at her. Whether you are a woman or man or child, look at her and be inspired. Be in awe of her heroic faithfulness to take whatever responsibility or opportunity given to her and to carry it out faithfully. That's what all of us are called to do in our own lives. That's what a a life of wisdom looks like. It looks like heroic faithfulness.
So ask yourself this question. Am I a woman or a man who can be trusted with great responsibility? Would I be considered faithful? Would someone consider you a precious treasure in their life because they can trust you with their treasures? For those of you who are married, ask yourself this. Does my spouse trust me? Would my spouse praise me for being trustworthy? Have I earned that trust? And that's something you have to realize. Your spouse's trust has to be earned. Now, their love, their love is different. Your love for each other as husband and wife is not earned. It's not conditioned by your performance. You don't stop loving your spouse because he or she has failed you or failed your expectations. No, the love between husband and wife is freely given as an act of the will bound together by a covenant before God. Just as God loved us freely and graciously in the same way, love within marriage is free and gracious. It is not something to be earned. But trust, trust is different. You can lose trust because of something that you did. You may no longer, because something that they did, you may no longer trust your spouse. But you can still love your spouse and you can still remain committed to rebuilding that trust. And so if you're the one in the marriage who has done wrong, if you're the one who has lost the trust of your spouse, I do pray that this Proverbs 31 woman has awakened something within you, uh, an aspiration to, to rebuild and to re-earn the trust of your spouse. Ask yourself, what can I do even this week to build back that trust? And now for those of you who are not married, Instead of using Proverbs 31 as a measuring stick for a potential spouse, use it instead as an inspirational example to become, for yourself, a truly heroic figure who earns the trust and respect of a potential spouse because of your own faithfulness. Commit yourself to becoming a person of integrity a person who can be trusted with great responsibility and great treasure. And then perhaps one day God will give you the treasure of a spouse and a family. So friends, the first aspiration that we should all aspire to is this proverb 31 woman's heroic faithfulness. Now the second aspiration, the second one would be her diligent fruitfulness. This attribute of hers is spelled out for us in verses 13 to 27. And like we said, she is praised for these things as this heroic figure. In verses 13 to 19, she's presented to us as an able businesswoman. This valiant wife is not cloistered in the home. No, her duties extend beyond the walls of the house. She's in the marketplace. She's purchasing goods and resources. She's providing for her family. In verse 14, it compares her to a merchant ship that brings food from afar. That's really another way of saying that she goes the distance to provide for her family. And then in verse 15, she's essentially compared to a lioness or any kind of nocturnal hunter who rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. 
So basically is speaking to both her strength and her work ethic. She's the early bird who gets the worm. And, and look at verse 16. It says there, she's a shrewd businesswoman capable of purchasing land. I mean, she's managing a vineyard, so she's literally fruitful. And in verses 18 to 19, she's got a profitable business that she's running out of her own house. She burns the midnight oil, working long hours after the kids are already down. And again, I, I understand that at this moment, all the stay-at-home moms are feeling pretty bad. They're feeling pretty worthless. And, and all the working moms are feeling discouraged for not being able to match this woman's productivity. Everyone's feeling bad. But that's only when we're forgetting that this Proverbs 31 woman is not a legalistic standard, but rather an inspirational symbol. She is the epitome of the work ethic, the strong biblical work ethic that was preached on earlier in this series. Everything Proverbs has praised in the wise worker and condemned in the lazy fool is wrapped up in this one woman. Look at verse 27. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. But don't be crushed by her example. Be inspired, rather, to greater diligence, to, for, to commit yourself to, to having a stronger work ethic in whatever realm of responsibility that you're in and with whatever task you've been given. That's all she's meant to do. She's meant to inspire you towards that same work ethic and diligence. The same could be said for her compassion that she shows towards the poor in verse 20. We had previous sermons where we preached on, on various proverbs that emphasize generosity and compassion to the poor. And look how she exemplifies all of that in verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. This passage, as, as we said, um, uh, is bookending the whole book of Proverbs. And as you see here, it's really just trying to wrap up all of the major themes that it's covered all within this one woman. So remember how we had preached on some Proverbs about our wise speech? Well, look at verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So she's that wise person who gives sound advice. She offers wise counsel. And remember how we preached on Proverbs that were about making your plans, but then after you make your plans, you commit them into the Lord's sovereign hands? Well, look at verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. That means she doesn't worry about the future. She's not anxious about an uncertain future. Now, now, that laughing is not suggesting a carelessness, but rather it's suggesting a confidence in the Lord and in his sovereign plans for her future and her family's future. So for all these reasons, this Proverbs 31 woman is praised, especially by her own family members. Look at verses 28 to 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. There are other noble, valiant, heroic women out there, but my wife or my mother has surpassed them all. 
Friends, the point of this passage is for all of us to admire this amazing woman and then to wonder to ourselves, how is she so diligent? How is she so productive? How is she so compassionate and so confident and so wise in her speech? How is she so fruitful in her life? Well, I'm going to assume that you want the same for your own life. I assume that you admire her and you wish that you can exhibit even a fraction of her wisdom and godliness. And so what do you do about that? How can you be more like her? Well, again, we have to remember that this passage is not giving us a checklist to achieve, but that this is a poem stringing pearls for us to admire. And, and not just to admire the achievements of this woman, but to admire the very wisdom that she personifies. And friends, while she's able to personify wisdom, you have to remember that there is someone else in Scripture who went even further and incarnated wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says that Christ became to us wisdom from God. The Gospels say that Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. And so that's why we have to read and apply Proverbs 31 within the larger storyline of Scripture and to recognize that all of the good works, all of the fruit that this woman personifies can bear forth in our lives only if we have a relationship with the incarnate wisdom of God. If you simply read Proverbs 31 in isolation apart from the gospel and you try to be like this woman, you're going to try your hardest to imitate her and to imitate her good works, but you're going to find yourself consistently failing, consistently falling short of bearing her fruit. Such good works cannot be self-generated. You can't bear forth this fruit on your own. Friends, the Christian message says that the seed of the gospel has to be planted in your heart first. I'm talking about just a mustard-sized uh, mustard seed of faith. Faith trusting in Jesus as the Lord and Savior who died for your sins and who rose again for your salvation. And then, and then that seed of the gospel, once implanted in your heart, it produces new life. You become a new person in Christ. Then out of that new relationship that you have with wisdom incarnate, then you begin to bear the fruits of wisdom. You begin to resemble the wisdom of this Proverbs 31 woman. It all begins with the gospel and the gospel in your heart and by faith changing you so that you bear this kind of fruit. That's how this works. Your admiration for the fruitfulness of this amazing woman should never stop with her. She is meant to point you to someone else. Wisdom personified in Proverbs points you to wisdom incarnate in the Gospels. 
That means your relationship with Christ is of foremost importance. That's what you need to focus on most of all. And that's reaffirmed for us in our third and last aspiration. So the first aspiration is towards her heroic faithfulness. The second is towards her diligent fruitfulness. The third aspiration is towards the Proverb 31 woman's proper fearfulness. Now look with me at verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This, of course, is probably the most well-known verse in this poem. It's quite telling that in a poem valorizing a woman, it's quite telling that the only mention of her beauty, of her physical attraction, is actually set in the negative. It's really a non-factor. It's considered vain and fleeting. But you have to realize, to, to not include her beauty when trying to describe an excellent wife, that would have been unheard of in ancient literature. That would have been the first thing in ancient literature that would have been highlighted. And as it would be even today, in modern depictions of the picture-perfect wife, I think we give an inordinate amount of attention to physical beauty. So much, if you think about it, so much of our anxiety, so many of our fears are tied to our insecurities about how we look. Just think about how much time we waste looking at ourselves in the mirror, wishing that we had you know, different hair or a better complexion or a smaller nose or bigger eyes or less wrinkles. You can go on and on. It just, it does really go on and on because there's really no end if you're chasing after physical beauty. Whatever standard you're chasing will always remain unattainable because the standard itself is always changing. That's what it means when the Bible says that beauty is fleeting. It is a moving standard, and so you will never be satisfied. But the one key trait worthy of praise, worthy of our chase, worthy of our time and attention, right here it says it's the proper fear of the Lord. As we said earlier, this trait is prominent in the beginning and here in the end of Proverbs. It's really the one thing that fundamentally distinguishes this particular woman from all the other negative betrayals of women found in this book. She's the one who has a proper fear of the Lord. And that, you have to understand, that does not mean that she is scared of the Lord. There is a difference between fearing the Lord and being scared of the Lord. I just think about it. A good, loving father wants his children to fear him, but he doesn't want them to be scared of him. We would probably say that it's a good sign if his kids respect him, if they revere his words, if they fear his hand of discipline, but it would be a bad sign, a wicked sign if his Kids are flat out scared of him and what he might do to them. Well, when it comes to our relationship with the Heavenly Father, fear is not incompatible with love. You can simultaneously love God and fear God, but you can't love God and be scared of him at the same time. Think about that. If 
you're not a Christian, if you don't have a loving relationship with God the Father, then the honest truth is you should be scared of him if you take his word seriously. You should be scared of what he might do to you because he can condemn you for your sins. He can bring down the sword of justice upon your head. He could damn you to eternal punishment and be perfectly just to do so. But friends, if you receive the salvation that Jesus has accomplished on the cross, if you trust him to be your savior who let the sword of justice fall on his own head instead of yours, if you, if you receive him this way by faith, then you have no need to be scared of God anymore. You don't have to worry about what he might do to you out of anger because God is no longer angry towards you. Your sins have been covered by his son. They have been covered by the blood of Christ. And now as a Christian, you can fear God for who he is and not for what he might do to you. That is what a proper fear of the Lord looks like. That's the proper fearfulness of this Proverbs 31 woman. She feared God for who he is, not for what he might do to her. I think that's her most prominent attribute. That's what made her so praiseworthy and what made her so attractive. But the problem is, well, the problem is that so few of us in this world have eyes to see that kind of beauty. Sadly, we have been trained to look for beauty simply on the surface. We can only see outer beauty. We care far too much about our own looks, and we put far too much weight on the looks of others when we're looking for a spouse. The fact is, the fact is most people put all of their effort into maintaining their physical beauty their outer beauty by working out or dieting or trying new hairstyles, getting facial treatments, even getting plastic surgery, but all the while giving little attention to inner beauty, to the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. First Peter 3, 4. But you know, if you focus all of your attention in your life on outer beauty, or well, one day you're going to wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and wonder what happened. Because as you grow older, as you grow older, it does not change your inner beauty, but it certainly does change outer beauty. Age affects your body shape your facial appearance, your skin tone, your, 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 the, 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 your hairline, the, the color of your hair, it affects a lot of things on the outside. You know, to look good in your youth, that's really no accomplishment. That's pretty easy. But to look incredible after 40 years, or 60 years, or 70 years of life. Now that is a feat to be praised. That takes wisdom. That means that you must have been working over all those years to adorn the inner 
imperishable beauty of the heart. You know, the most beautiful people in the world, they're not found on runways or magazine covers. They're found in nursing homes, clinging to a Bible in one hand and to a photo of their spouse in another, in a room filled with those who love them, who are now saying their goodbyes. The beauty of these individuals shines through their faithfulness to the people that they have loved in their life, through their fruitfulness in a life well-lived, and ultimately through their fearfulness in their Lord God who is preparing to welcome them home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, this Proverbs 31 woman. And we pray that it truly does awaken something in each of us to inspire us to want to pursue a life of greater wisdom, a life of greater faithfulness and fruitfulness marked by a proper fear of you, our Lord, our Savior. Oh, Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.